nothing spiritual about that, but he came up and said it to me, so I had to put him on blast. That, that's my bad. Couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. All right. We are continuing on. God, i got to go from blue suede shoes to Jonah. That, Anyways, all right. Go ahead, turn with me to the Old Testament prophet of Jonah. Now, you've got a whole list of prophets. Jonah's kind of caught right in the middle of them. It's even a short book of the Bible, so it's one that you may have to thumb through a few times before you find it. But Jonah, we have seen in just three weeks' time up to this point, contains so much about the grace of God. That is our purpose for studying Jonah, finding the grace of God. Now while you're turning there, I also want to remind you, if you missed our service last week, we had such a phenomenal time. It had nothing to do with the preaching, but it had everything to do with the testimony from Sean Foster, who uh, shared with you how he believed that he had been saved, but then realized he'd been walking in darkness, had surrendered his life to Christ, got baptized, and then we saw the testimony, the story of Eric McDaniel and what he has gone through, and then singing a song like, I'm redeemed. It's a reminder that each of you have a story of some kind. And something that we want to start doing at Grace Baptist Church is collecting as many of these stories that we can. So if you get the chance, if you feel like you've got a story that someone needs to hear and a story that you want to tell, go to our website or go to the app and there is an opportunity. It'll look like a link like this right here. We want to hear your story. Now, it doesn't mean that every single story we're going to have you come up on stage and talk about it. We may even do some video testimony. We may have some different kinds of testimonies, but we want to hear your story. So, if you get an opportunity, if you've got nothing better to do this afternoon, go ahead and share with us your story. Anyways, a little plug on that, but let's begin reading Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to start at the first verse. We're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. Here we go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh, according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Boy, that sounds like fun. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions 
that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster He had threatened them with, and He did not do it. Let's pray together. Oh God, You are mighty. You are majestic. You are Creator. We stand in awe of Your presence. Father, You have given us this Word so that we may learn, we may apply, we may be different than we were before. Only You, God, can do this. We rest in that. We surrender to that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen. There was once a young man who went in for a screen test, one of his very first ones, and it was with a notable director at MGM. And the director at MGM had this to say about the young man. He can't act, he can't sing, he's slightly bald, but he can dance a little. Well, Fred Astaire went on to become an incredibly successful actor, singer, and dancer, and kept that note with him in his Beverly Hills home to remind him of where he came from. Another story, in July of 1939, this young man came to own a hotel and a restaurant. Within four months, both of them were destroyed by fire. It wasn't until 1940 when this man began to finalize what he called his secret chicken recipe. And at the age of 50 years old, however, in 1942, during World War II, he sold his business and subsequently got divorced in 1947. Well, go all the way to 1955, another one of his restaurants had failed. Uh, after an interstate route that led traffic to his restaurant, it got changed and took people away from it. That year, with just a $105 Social Security check to his name, and at 65 year old, uh, years old at this point, he set out to sell his franchised chicken model to restaurants across the country. He was rejected a thousand and nine times. But now, today, Harlan Sanders is known as the Colonel, and Kentucky Fried Chicken is still around. Okay, maybe that one doesn't get you, but in 1976, at the age of 22, after graduating from Queens College, this young man wanted to try his hand at stand-up comedy, so he goes to an open mic night in New York City where he froze on stage, forgetting the joke that he was supposed to tell. And while he's standing there in silence, someone stands up in the crowd and says, I'm guessing this is your first time. And everyone else starts laughing. Then he gets so embarrassed and so scared, he runs off the stage and doesn't even finish his set. He decides not to give up but goes back to the stand-up act, and over three years, he ends up getting on an HBO uh, special. He has a small role in a sitcom. Finally, his big breakthrough came in 1981, where he appears alongside Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, and within another seven years of honing his craft at 34 years old, he starred in his own television show, 
called Seinfeld. He did okay for himself. Young lady was broken, divorced, and depressed. She believed that she had a story to tell a mass audience. Picking herself up out of a horrible relationship, trying to find work, she becomes a teacher and in her spare time devotes herself to write out and finish this idea that she had written down on several sheets of paper, just scribbles on paper. It took seven years and 12 different rejection letters before J.K. Rowling was able to publish Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and it became an overnight sensation, spawned six more books and eight Hollywood blockbuster movies. Failure is always a part of life. We live in a world fraught with failure, and up to chapter 3 so far in the study of Jonah, we can see that Jonah was in the same category, in the same place of failure. After a total rebellion from the Lord, now he begins his second phase of his ministry. Starting back at chapter, verse 1, hopefully you see the parallels going back to Chapter 1, if you don't, go home and read it and make sure that you understand. It is almost verbatim what we saw when we began the study. God calls, He gives Jonah a task to get up and go to Nineveh and tells Jonah the destination. It's going to be with those big bad Ninevites who are the head honchos of the Assyrian Empire. But now we see a difference finally in his response. Instead of Jonah going down to Tarshish, now it says that he actually gets up and goes. His get up and go must have got up and went. The Jonah in obedience responds to the command of God. Now, after the recall from chapter 1, now we see just a little bit of a study on exactly what the city of Nineveh was at this point in time. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that it is in current-day Iraq now. This would be northeast of the city of Baghdad, where Baghdad sits now. But even then, it is noted as a great city. And we believe that this has a double meaning. Two meanings to that. First, obviously it was a great and large and powerful city because it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. But also, some Bible translators have it that it was a great city because even though it was comprised of all Gentiles, it was of great importance to God. Well, how do we know it was of great importance to God? Well, obviously it must be because God is insistent on sending Jonah there with a message. We also see the author states that it's a three-day walk in Nineveh. Now, this is noting the size of the city. To get from one end of it to the next would have been a three-day trek. Continued on down to verse 4, it tells how Jonah set out on the first day preaching. Some have even tried to tie this to the reluctance of Jonah. And we're going to see more of that reluctance, unfortunately, in chapter 4. But some have said, well, it was a three-day trek and he only preaches for one day of it. Maybe you can make that argument, but I also like to make this one. That even though he had only preached on day one and it's a three-day trek, the message that he sent, the power of God's Word behind it, caused it to travel at triple the speed that it normally would have. 
according to verse 4, the message was quite simple. God had prepared them, the people of Nineveh, for this word. God had sent Jonah with this word specifically. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Not real uplifting. Not real hopeful. Happy Father's Day. You're going to be demolished. That's essentially the word of it. But it was a specific word for this specific time. And we see the result of it. From the outset, the word went to work. And we must understand, when we're reading Jewish literary, uh, literacy like this, or something that's literary in this term, the customs, the way that they write it, it's not always linear. Meaning, it doesn't always go in a straight line. Because this is written first, then this is written second, this means that this happened before this. Not so. So more than likely, we see this widespread of the edict. More than likely, this was after the king had heard the word first. More than likely, even though we read it, it happened the opposite. But as the word struck the people, they immediately go into an intense fast. A fast here that is a representation of their repentance. It's a sign of mourning. How intense is this fast? Even the poor animals and livestock can't eat or drink nothing while these people are going through it. The sign of repentance was wearing sackcloth. This rough clothing was supposed to show an outward sign of humility, an outward sign of self-deprivation. But just like circumcision in the Old Testament and just like other animal sacrifices, just because someone performs the task, actually has the stuff on, it does not mean that repentance or the fast is real. But in the case of the Ninevites, we see something important. We see a change. We see a turnaround. And in their limited understanding of God, they are hoping that God will forgive them. They're not expecting God to do anything for them. It's true and it's real. They're not doing it with the expectation of if we put on this dog and pony show that God will bless us. No, no. They understand how important and how big and mighty God is and they're not expecting Him to do anything but follow through in what he says, and that's that they will be demolished. But in verse 10, God relents. God relents. God sees that they've turned from their evil. And their disaster will not happen. Now before we get to our main points of the sermon, I feel like Jonah in this text almost gets lost in the shuffle. We lose him a little bit in this narrative. Why is it? Why does it seem as if he takes a back seat to this? Well, one, he should. Why is that? Well, he's the vessel. He is the one serving the full purpose of God, and God is intending to use him and his words. But when God's word is given, it's not the vessel that should be praised and honored. No, it should all go to God and his glory and his hope. And that's exactly who the people of Nineveh are focused on in their revival. The preacher takes a back seat as God has given his due honor and praise. Now, with that being the case, with God being our focus, as He always is, our four points today that I've taken away from chapter 3, all of them will focus on God in this text. Starting with 
take number one. Here we go. Point number one is God's take two. And yes, I did some of that on purpose because to have God's take two is point number one is going to mess with some of you. So I confess I did some of that on purpose. But here's the idea. It's almost cliche. It's almost to the point that we hear it all the time. We take it out of context most of the time. But we must be reminded, we must come to an understanding that our God is truly a God of second chances. Amen? Okay, good. Just making sure. Our God is a God of second chances. I promise you, that's good news for us. From the very beginning of this text, we point it out, and we see God do it again and again as we get to chapter 3, almost verbatim. He gives Jonah the same call as chapter 1. I promise you, that is a bigger deal than maybe we realize. How often have we missed the call of God? How often have we completely missed the boat that went by us when we should have been paying attention to what God wants us to do? We completely missed the opportunity, but thank goodness God gives second chances. We're reminded that sin is a sin, can be a sin of commission, an act that we commit, but sin is also sin by omission or something that we've missed out or an, uh, we have omitted an act altogether that we haven't seen. But in trying to highlight the grace of God in this entire series, we see it so clearly just within the first couple of verses of the recommissioning of Jonah to fulfill what God has ordered. Do not forget, do not take for granted that God's mercies, according to Lamentations 3, are new every morning. Don't forget that God recommissions His saints his saints, let me try that again, each day for us to seek His will and obey. But also in this chapter is a picture of God giving grace and second chances to the Ninevites as well. These are not God's chosen people. These are the outsiders. They're the Gentiles. They're the ones that are completely ignorant of God. But let us not forget that Romans 1 teaches us of the general revelation of God. That all are given evidence of God by the appearance of His creation. We know that God exists because we can see His creation all around us. Therefore, even though these people would not have known the monotheistic God of the Hebrews known as Yahweh, these Ninevites are still without excuse for their sins. But God cares enough for these sinners. That in this story, He intervenes on their behalf by sending Jonah. Our God gives second chances because He's patient. Because He loves us. The Lord does not delay His promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 Point number two, we see God's conviction. How does God work in this way? How does God move the people that He's trying to shake up? It is through conviction. We know that conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit according to John 16.8, but let's define it. I grabbed this from Bible.org, just a simple Bible explanation. Here you go, it defines it in this way. The act or process of convincing. That's conviction. The state 
of being convinced or a fixed or strong belief that is characterized by commitment to the Scripture as one authority. The construction of specific beliefs and convictions based on that understanding of Scripture and the courage to act on these convictions. Now we are given a microscopic, small view of conviction in chapter 3 in the way in regards to the repentance of the Ninevites. And if I could, I would add one more C to that commitment of the Scriptures, construction of faith based on the Scriptures, and then encourage to act it out. I would say that conviction and repentance must bring about a change. The Ninevites, through the simple message of, hey, y'all, you might want to watch out. God's about to come and demolish you. It changed their belief to now a belief in God. It changed their attitude to one of mourning. The conviction changed their posture. Instead of a proud people, they now became a humble people. There's a humility as seen by the sackcloth that they were wearing. They were now crying out to God. To speak of this conviction is just one thing, to give lip service towards the idea of turning away from sin is just something else. To speak of remorse is just one thing. But to verbally, physically, spiritually be moved by conviction to bring about a change without an expectation of God doing anything for you on your behalf, that is repentance. That is turning away from sins and turning towards God. The Ninevites heard the message and responded in mourning. They were changed as a result. I thought this was so cool. If you look back at the message of Jonah, the Hebrew term for demolished is the same Hebrew word used to be changed. Even though God didn't go about the change in the way that they expected, God still carried out this plan for the people of Nineveh. God made it possible for this type of change. God provided the opportunity, and God instigated the change. Third thing we see, God relents. Now notice, we'll make a distinction. The people are the ones that changed. It's not God that changes. He's unwavering, He is consistent, yet He will also relent. And it's not that the people changed God or that the people even changed God's mind. That didn't happen. God knew in His perfection the message, the proper message for the people of Nineveh. God also knew what would happen, what He would do if the people repented. And He also knew was not mistaken because God also knew that they would repent, that they would be changed. So what do we do with this information? Knowing this about God and knowing how God acts, what should we do? How should that change our posture? We act in this knowledge by praying, by crying out, by showing a dependence or a surrender to the will of God, knowing that God knows the outcome one way or the other regardless. It was made known to them that God relented and they continued in their reverence. Part of our worship, part of our dependence on God, 
should be for us to maintain a constant state of crying out to God, seeking God's will, seeking change in others on behalf of others. Fourth thing, we see God's perfect grace, but also His perfect justice. At the beginning of the sermon, we spoke of a handful of failures turned successes. And while we may be familiar with some of these, we are all aware that there are thousands upon thousands of failures turned failure stories to go along with it. Expanding outside of the text ever so slightly, we'd be remiss not to mention that the happy ending for the Ninevites is somewhat short-lived. Here's what I mean. If you go over a couple more prophets in the Bible to the prophet of Nahum, you see that Nahum preaches to the same city, same area, about a generation later. And God's wrath is coming for them. It does not mean that God changed His mind again or changed His mind back because He didn't change it to begin with. But after a generation of repentance with Jonah's prophecy, now the Ninevites have fallen back into the same habits that they were in prior. This time, God's perfect justice must be seen and witnessed. If God is perfect, there must be both grace and justice executed perfectly. And even though we see that God is a God of second chances, it does not mean that God is a God of infinite second chances. We have to understand that what we seek for this life and what we deserve for this life is justice for all of our failures, for falling short of God's glory. But thankfully in His mercy, we can also be given grace. But Kyle, why is it that everyone doesn't receive grace? Well, even when God's desire is for all men to be saved, according to 1 Timothy 2.4, what would be perfect about a God that allows sin to go unpunished? That wouldn't be perfect. Sin must be punished. And that's the beauty of the Gospel. That Jesus, who didn't deserve death, took on our punishment. That Jesus took on the punishment that we deserve. And through a belief in Him and Him alone, that He is God, His death and resurrection atones for our sins. story I found of a young man. One day, him and his dad were so excited because they got their first riding lawnmower. When it arrived, the dad, who was also a pastor, looked at him and said, Well, Dan, go ahead. You get to take it for the first ride. The author says this was the greatest moment in his life up to this point. So off he went. And even though he was told you might want to start off in a lower gear, he was 11, so at this point he'd already driven all kinds of go-karts and four-wheelers and things like that. So man, he put the pedal to the metal. And it was okay because all he had in front of him was this big, wide sloth of land that he was going to mow and one clothes pole. Well, 
says he literally moved the lawnmower about 50 feet and bang, right into the clothes pole. He had avoided all the grass, but he'd hit the clothes pole. Front end of the mower was cracked. Headlight was broken. Part of the metal cover was bent. He felt absolutely horrible. Prepared himself for the biggest punishment that he would ever see. What was his dad going to do? He ran over, helped him turn off the tractor because it was still in gear and hitting up against the pole time and time again. And then he said, nothing. And before the dad could even say a word, the son said he felt absolutely terrible. He knew what he was going to get in that moment was a huge dose of law with scolding and permanent restriction from ever riding that lawnmower again. He got off the tractor, and before his dad could say anything, he went ahead and professed himself, I'll never ride it again, ever, I promise. Dad responded, that's okay. We'll make sure to take the clothes pole down before we mow again. The damage to the mower was never repaired. The dad never mentioned it again. The damage to the front served as a reminder for the son about the use of the law and the gospel. The unconditional forgiveness by the dad showed him what flowed from the heart of the Lord. It was a demonstration of love shown by our Heavenly Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The author says, Now, when he feels the need to dole out his own punishment, it was the dad that helped him to see it differently. It helped him to realize mercy, grace, forgiveness. He knew that his dad had love and forgiveness that came from his heart and it was a reflection of an understanding of God's love for him. So with that being said, I'm going to ask the band to come on up. And I want to ask you, do you believe that today? Have you surrendered to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? Have you been changed by the Holy Spirit coming into your life because of your belief in Jesus Christ? Maybe you check and answer yes to those things, but maybe you're here and there needs to be a repentance, a turning away from sin. Men, especially for you in the room, I can't think of a better Father's Day gift that you could give to someone else than a changed heart for Jesus Christ and a surrendered attitude towards the Lord. I want to ask you some more. Does your sin... Bring about mourning. Is there conviction in your life? A convincing that your ways are wrong and they must be changed. Are you living out these convictions according to the Spirit? Or is it just lip service? In all these things, we're about to sing one more song. These altars are open as a starting point as a beginning of the repentance process. 
as an outward sign, just like sackcloth. Sackcloth doesn't change anything in itself. Coming to an altar doesn't change anything itself, but does it begin to produce the humility and the surrender to God Almighty as you get on your knees and worship and pray and recognize His ways are not yours, that His ways are higher than yours. That's where we're at. Do you understand the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? If you're unsure, I'll be right here on the front row. Come find me. Let's have a conversation. If, and if we've got to stay afterwards, even if we're a little bit late to lunch, come talk to me. I would love to answer questions on what you have on salvation, what it means to be saved. In the meantime, let's pray together. God, thank You for the heart that You had for the Ninevite people when they were completely ignorant of You, God. You sent word to them. You sent message to them. They recognized, they repented, and they were changed. Thank You, God, that today we can see the same thing, but we get to recognize it even more so that You loved us so much that You sent Jesus to not just recognize our sin, but so Jesus could die for our sins. So we could be forgiven. So that our lives could be changed. So that the kingdom of God could be advanced here on earth and would continue about Your mission and Your will. Lord, we love You. We recognize our need for You today. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to Grace Baptist Cartersville podcast. If you would like more of Grace Baptist Cartersville, make sure you check out our GBC Young Adults podcast. Also, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and our services on YouTube. Thank you.